if you did not sleep enough at night then taking a nap the next day is really good in getting back your full energy somewhere between say 30 minutes to 1 and 1/2 hour can compensate for sleeping less the previous night the circadian rhythm research has led to this idea that lighting can be manipulated for health so one side of the coin is yes in the daytime having much brighter light is way much better for our mental health than some of the drugs antidepressants and other things and then the other side is by dimming down light in the evening or reducing the brightness on our screen whether it's laptop or phone or changing the color of the light to orange color and dim at night is also beneficial for sleep and brain health In today's conversation, we welcome back Sachin Panda, PhD. As a refresher for those who have not come across Dr. Panda before, he is a professor at the Salk Institute in California, and his lab studies how circadian rhythms influence metabolic health and longevity. Last week, and also in episode 221 of The Proof, we explored the science underlying circadian biology and circadian disruption. If you haven't listened to those episodes, while it would be helpful, that's completely okay. Today's episode does not rely on prior knowledge. Today you will hear about the six lifestyle habits that science suggests are critical to supporting circadian biology and optimizing your health. The things that you can do starting from today to nurture your circadian rhythms and in doing so, live better for longer. Enjoy. One of the best ways to track our health is to regularly get blood work done so we can take a peek under the hood and get a feel for the state of our cardiometabolic and hormonal health. You can do this with your local doctor or you can use a service like Inside Tracker. The nice thing about Inside Tracker is they make the process super convenient. You can organize their phlebotomist, a person who draws blood, to come to your house or office to do the blood draw. A few days later your results show up in the Inside Tracker app and they provide lifestyle recommendations based on whether a particular test is suboptimal, normal or optimal. I've checked Inside Tracker's lifestyle recommendations, specifically the exercise and nutrition ones, and I can confidently say they are evidence-based and in line with the information shared in both my book and on this show. They even added ApoB to their ultimate plan, based on recommendation from myself and others. It's also nice to have all of your lab results readily accessible in one mobile app, making it easy to pull up past results and see trends and patterns over time. Get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. To get started, go to insidetracker.com/simon for this exclusive offer. That's insidetracker.com/simon. If you're a long-time listener of this show, you'll be well aware of the scientific evidence that supports a high-fiber, plant-rich diet for good long-term health. And while I certainly believe in a food-first approach, there is a role for supplements to help optimize the intake of specific nutrients and address any nutritional gaps. Enter Emil. Emil is a plant-based wellness company with a series of products to help you optimize your plant-based diet. Two of my favorite products being the Essential 8 multivitamin and the Optimal Omega Plus. The Essential 8 contains 8 key nutrients that plant-based eaters often fall short in. And the Optimal Omega Plus 
contains a direct source of DHA and EPA omega-3s, same as in fish, but from algae. In fact, taking Optimal Omega Plus daily, which contains 750 mg of EPA and DHA, is equivalent to eating 2 to 3 pieces of fatty fish per week, in line with the nutrition recommendations globally. To get your Essential 8 and Optimal Omega Plus, head to theproof.com forward slash friends and follow the link which will get you an extra 10% off your first order. That's theproof.com forward slash friends. Just to recap our previous conversations that we've had together and sort of set the stage for today's conversation. In those conversations, you have beautifully walked us through what our circadian rhythms are and how our health can be negatively affected when we experience circadian disruption. And circadian disruption being defined as these biological rhythms that affect our alertness, sleepiness, appetite, body temperature, metabolism, etc., etc., becoming sort of misaligned with the local environment and the time of the day. And you explained that an acute example of this that many people have experienced firsthand is jet lag and that people may be a little bit less aware that you can also induce this circadian disruption in a kind of more insidious, uh, less acute manner if you're living an unhealthy lifestyle. So that's, that's really what I want to focus on today, your six uh, simple lifestyle habits. I say simple in that they're simple to understand, perhaps not so simple in practice, but these six lifestyle habits that people can focus on to nurture their circadian rhythms. So I was planning to kind of step through these one by one with you, and I might just summarize them here at the outset so the listeners know the the territory that we're going to step through. Um, so these are uh, number one, sleep optimization. Number two, morning fast after waking. Number three, time-restricted eating. Number four is appropriate daylight exposure. Number five, afternoon exercise. And number six, an evening fast and no bright light before going to bed. So perhaps we start here with sleep optimization, the first lifestyle habit. Sachin, why is sleeping so important? Actually, your day begins with uh, what time you went to bed the previous night. Um, because at the end of the day, uh, our brain and also body requires this downtime to repair, reset, and rejuvenate. And we think that sleep is just uh, downtime. We're not doing much lying in the bed. But actually, a body gets into a very different state uh, to repair and reset, rejuvenate itself. Uh, so one uh, key uh, thing to keep in mind is to set a bedtime. So if you can regularly go to bed at 10 o'clock or 11 o'clock, that's fine. Or if you are going to bed at 1 or 2, then just keep that bedtime consistent because your circadian rhythm actually learns what time you go to bed. So next day or every day, it prepares your body to go to bed 
at the same time. So that means your lot of hormones, lot of brain chemicals, and also genes that turn on to prepare you to go to bed. One simple example is melatonin. For example, for many of us, melatonin, which helps us to fall asleep and stay asleep, this nightly hormone melatonin is produced from the pineal gland, um, which is a small gland present in the, at the top of our brain. And uh, this melatonin begins to rise two to three hours before we go to bed habitually. So that means if you're going to bed at, say, 11 at night, then melatonin will begin to rise from almost undetectable or very low level uh, upward, uh, maybe at eight or nine o'clock in the evening. And then when you go to bed within the first two to three hours, um, a different part of the brain gets activated and then it tells the pituitary gland, which is at the base of your brain, to produce growth hormone, for example. So growth hormone spikes within two to three hours after we go to bed. And um, for example, one day if you decide to go to bed much later, instead of 11, your habitual bedtime, you're going to bed at 1 or 2, then there is this confusion in the pituitary. It was supposed to produce growth hormone um, one or two hours after going to bed, but that is around midnight or one o'clock if you're going to bed at 11. But one day when you delay the bedtime to 12 or 11, one o'clock, then uh, that growth hormone spike may not happen at the right time to the right extent. So then your body cannot repair itself optimally. So that's one example. So similarly, after you go to bed, your brain goes through a lot of different processes. One is detoxification or taking out the garbage. Um, so throughout the day, when our brain is active, it produces a lot of uh, chemicals, reactive oxygen species that are kind of damaging if they accumulate too much. And that's one reason why we also feel sleepy. We feel fuzzy towards the end of the day. And research in only in the last 10 years or so has shown that only during our sleep, this detoxification process that happens in the brain lymphatic system, which is almost, you can think of the drainage system in the brain, um, all these uh, toxic materials, they get out and then get to the lymphatic system and then they get out of the brain. So in that way, it cleanses itself. And another function of sleep is also strengthening synapses. So that means our brain is composed of billions of neurons or nerve cells. They, uh, these cells are devoted to different types of tasks. So for example, some neurons sense things. Uh, all our sensory systems are connected to parts of the brain. And then other parts of the brain retain memory or recall memory and then um, Parts of the brain also process the information and then the other parts send out the decision. So whether you are driving a car, when you're driving a car, then your visual system is taking in the information where you are, how fast you are going, what are the uh, cars and trucks in front of you, and your brain is processing that and it's telling your leg and hand to steer and push the gas pedal or the brake to 
to go safely. So all these activities are happening in your brain and those activities require different brain parts to talk to each other and those talking to each other or the synaptic processes actually get strengthened during this sleep. Uh, sleep also improves memory. So during daytime, whatever we have learned that gets stored and processed and stored in sleep. So you can see that a lot of different things, starting from detoxifying the brain to production of many hormones that are required for better sleep to repairing our organs to even synaptic strength of, and building memories and making the brain more efficient so that it can perceive, process, and decide what to do next. All of these things happen during our sleep. So that's why going to bed at a consistent time and then how long you should sleep. So one should, an adult should sleep at least six and a half to seven and a half hours because studies on millions of people over the last 25 to 30 years in different continents, in different populations, have come to the same or similar conclusion that people who sleep less than six hours consistently or those who sleep more than eight hours consistently, uh, they're not in better health than people who sleep somewhere between six to seven and a half hours. So the sweet spot is around six and a half to seven and a half hours of sleep for adults. But for teenagers, it's different. Teenagers should get eight to nine hours of sleep and then, as you know, babies, toddlers, they actually should get even 9 to 12 hours of sleep. So um, what we'll be talking about is mostly for adult sleep. So that's why I say that fix a consistent bedtime and then be in bed. Try to be in bed or schedule your bedtime to be eight hours so that you can get six and a half to seven and a half hours of sleep. Yeah, that's an important point that I was going to make there and something that I've recently observed by wearing a kind of wearable device and have had this insight into the fact that while I might may be in bed for eight hours, my actual time asleep could only be seven hours um, yeah. of that duration. So that's an important thing for people to be conscious of if you're targeting six and a half to seven and a half hours of actual sleep, not time in bed, but actual sleep is what I'm hearing. Is that right? Yeah, that's that's <clears throat> And then in terms of consistent uh, bedtime, am I right that genetically um, some people are night owls and others are morning larks? So um, some people uh, go to bed at 7, 8 or 9 p.m. sort of naturally that feels like the right time for them and then they get up early in the morning quite easily and then others are up all night and prefer to go to bed at 11, 12, 1 p.m. Is is that something that is controlled by genes or are these differences in terms of the times that different people are going to bed uh, a result of behavior and environment? Yeah, so... Uh... Both statements are correct, but then the point is uh, what fraction of people have a genetic basis for going to bed early or late uh, and what fraction of people have a behavioral basis for going to bed early or late. Those things uh, differ a lot. So, for example, most geneticists would agree that less than one in 
100 people actually have genetic genes with the right mutation that will make them go to bed early, very early. When I say very early, it's actually before 9 p.m. If your sunset time is somewhere between, say, 5.30 and 7 p.m., then uh, these people go to bed before 9 p.m. And very few people actually pass that criteria. Um, So that's why I say less than 1 in 100. When it comes to going to bed very late, uh, this is where the genetics says, uh, again, the same fraction of people, less than one in 100, uh, have a genetic basis for them to go to bed pretty late at night, uh, I would say after midnight or after one o'clock. But the, this is where the lifestyle comes into play because um, many of us, we consume a lot of um, caffeine and Others, I would, I would not say psychoactive drug, but then the compounds that actually keep us alert and awake. And also, we are lighting up our in, indoor environment with pretty bright light, uh, blue LED lights, and that can suppress melatonin and also delay our sleep. So that's why in modern days, it's really difficult to see. It's very rare to see, for example, high school students or college students going to bed before uh, midnight. That doesn't mean that they're all genetically <laughs> programmed to go to bed after one o'clock. There's a clear example of um, behavior because if you if we take those same individuals who are going to bed pretty late at night and that almost they swear that they, there must be some genes that they're carrying, if we take them into... Um, into experimental condition and clinic or control condition and then we control that caffeine intake and also dim down the light early in the evening then vast majority of them will actually go to bed pretty early just like the rest of us they would go to bed between 9 and 11 whereas habitually they are going to bed after midnight so that's why um although many people would say that hey i am a night owl and when they make that statement, they're assuming that this is their gene, but in most cases, it's uh, uh, their habit. I personally used to be a night owl um, during my PhD. During my undergrad and master's, I went to bed between say, midnight and one o'clock. And then during my PhD, I used to go to bed between say 1.30 and four o'clock in the morning. And, but I knew that I, I used to drink a lot of caffeine and diet soda and um, after postdoc, uh, when I stopped all of that or uh, limited my caffeine intake to before noon, then it's very easy for me to fall asleep around 10 o'clock. So I have experienced this. I used to think that I am a night owl and then I realized that the caffeine and bright light were the problem. So this is something to keep in mind. So the bright lights suppress melatonin, melatonin being a hormone that um, helps sort of induce sleep, gets us feeling sleepy and um, helps us fall to sleep at the beginning of the, of the night. Uh, does caffeine suppress melatonin production or is it increasing alertness through another pathway? No, caffeine doesn't affect melatonin production. It uh, increases alertness through different pathway, um, and that's very clear now. Um, and also, uh, to 
another thing to keep in mind is uh, light suppresses sleep or increases alertness uh, through melatonin and also independent of melatonin. And we'll get to that in a in the daytime light <laughs> exposure section because in the daytime there is no melatonin, but still uh, light can increase alertness and um, happiness uh, independent of melatonin. So let's say someone, their ideal bedtime is 10 p.m. Yeah. But they also love a little shot of espresso <laughs> or a flat white at some point during the day. What, when's the latest time that they should have their coffee or when should they stop their caffeine intake? Yeah, so for an average person, um, we have what we call the 50% of caffeine is still in your system up to up six hours after your last caffeine shot. So that means if your caffeine shot was at uh, noon, um, then at 6 p.m. you still have 50% of that caffeine in your system. And then at uh, midnight, you have 25% of that caffeine in your system. And just imagine if you had like 100 milligram of caffeine, which is very easy to get these days. If you have an energy drink that can be even 200 milligrams sometimes, then you'd have, if you started with 200 milligram caffeine at noon, you'd still have 50 milligram caffeine at midnight in your system. So that's for average people. Some people um, degrade caffeine much faster, not super fast, not like in one hour they will get rid of all caffeine. We are talking about instead of six hours to break down half of the caffeine, they're taking maybe four to five hours. This, they would still have a good chunk of caffeine. And there are many people who may break down caffeine much slower. So after seven or eight hours only, they would still have, and after seven, seven to eight hours, they would still have 50% of caffeine. So in that way, uh, we don't know what kind of genes we have for caffeine breakdown. We also don't know what is our uh, natural, how, how, how is your normal caffeine breakdown process. Without knowing this, uh, the rule of thumb is, yes, if you stop caffeine before, say, one or two o'clock uh, in the afternoon, then you're more likely to fall asleep at 10, uh, between 10 and 11. What are some signs that caffeine may be affecting your sleep? Is it just that it would affect your ability to fall asleep or could it be that someone is consuming coffee regularly they're actually having no problems falling to sleep but unbeknown to them their sleep quality and those processes you described earlier of detoxification and the effect that sleep has on memory etc could be impaired by the presence of higher caffeine concentrations overnight yeah, so it does happen. Like some people are super tired um, by just physical activity um, and they fall asleep. But then um, their sleep quality is compromised because of daytime or evening time uh, caffeine consumption. So they cannot sleep for too long or they get up um, too many times at night. So caffeine affects both ability to fall asleep and also uh, consolidating sleep. So, uh, or caffeine will affect sleep fragmentation, will increase sleep fragmentation. Do you drink coffee yourself? I do. <laughs> Actually, I have coffee in the morning, but not after, say, 10 or 11. Uh, I'm just drinking some hot water right now. <laughs> uh, 
Okay. We, we're, we're going to come to the first two or three hours of the day in a moment. That's uh, number two on the list of these six lifestyle habits. Uh, while we're talking about melatonin and suppression of melatonin, so you, you mentioned there uh, that the bright lights can suppress melatonin which can affect our ability to fall asleep. Are there any other aspects of someone's lifestyle that could be suppressing melatonin other than bright lights? Actually, melatonin is very um, resilient. It, there are not too many things that actually affect melatonin production or release except for the circadian clock and light. And also when I say mel- light suppresses melatonin, um, what it does is we don't know exactly I won't go into detail, but melatonin is produced by the pineal gland and then it's released into blood circulation. And light suppresses the production of melatonin from pineal gland. Uh, It's not going to break down melatonin that's already in our blood circulation. It just stops that production of melatonin from the pineal. But melatonin gets actually cleared up by our circulation and also kidney pretty quickly. So that's why um, in the morning, for example, when um, light hits our eyes or, or when we when the pineal stops producing melatonin, then within two to three hours, we essentially cleared up most of the melatonin. Why this is important is since light effect on melatonin actually goes through the pineal gland, not on the circulating level of melatonin, then those who are taking supplemental melatonin, long-acting melatonin, for example, popping a pill, melatonin pill at bedtime, uh, light doesn't have any impact on their blood level of melatonin. So that's why, for example, you maybe uh, you might take a melatonin pill at four, at say four o'clock in the afternoon, and you are outside, but still. People will say that they, they feel groggy, they feel sleepy uh, because this light has very little impact on melatonin. Of course, there is another uh, pathway because uh, it's not that you'll just take melatonin and you'll fall asleep because our sleep has a circadian rhythm. So we have highest pressure to sleep uh, at our habitual bedtime. So that's why if somebody goes to bed at 10 o'clock every night, then if he or she pops a melatonin pill at four or five, he'll just feel sleepy. But even if that person goes to bed, he may not get actually quality sleep. So that's why it's also important that if you're trying to use melatonin to fall asleep and sustain sleep, that melatonin pill should be very close to your habitual preferred bedtime. So then that can act with your circadian pressure to sleep and you'll get a much better sleep. So timing and dose, if someone is taking a melatonin supplement, are you taking that two or three hours before your habitual bedtime? And what what is the kind of dose that would typically work for most adults? Yeah, I won't go into the dosing, uh, but... Uh, typically, the sleep researchers, the uh, sleep uh, clinicians recommend taking melatonin pill within an hour before your habitual bedtime. Um, and then the dosing is very different because I think everybody should experiment on themselves how much melatonin is just enough for them. Uh, you should not be taking too much melatonin. We'll get to that. 
Um, so, for example, these days, it's very normal to get a five milligram melatonin tablet. Um, and if you're trying to experiment with melatonin, I would suggest that you break it down to, say, a small chunks that are roughly one-fifth or one-sixth of a tablet, and then you start experimenting with roughly one milligram. Um, for example, I know people who are so sensitive to melatonin that they can take half a milligram of melatonin and they would fall asleep easily. Um, and next day morning, they're still feeling sleepy. Whereas there are some people who can take five to five milligram of melatonin that doesn't do a thing to them. So we still don't understand how, why some people need so much five milligram and some people can sleep with uh, 0.5 milligram, almost 10 fold change in dosing. So that's why I, I always, when people ask me about melatonin, I say, okay, do some self-experimentation when you are not traveling, because when you're traveling again, it's very confusing because your sleep pressure is building at a different time, you're in a different time zone, and you may not get a good readout. So it's better to try uh, for the first time, if you're trying melatonin, try when you're not traveling. And I think we've spoken about it before, but given that you've just brought it up, if you are traveling, I believe your recommendation was to, as quickly as possible, start living the lifestyle of the local people in that new time zone. So eating when they would be eating and, and going to sleep when they would be going to sleep. Is that right? Yeah. So that's, um, I mean, the eating at the new time zone, but the local people are eating when um, that's, that seems to be the, one of the most neglected <laughs> part of adopting to t new time zone, uh, because historically we always thought that light is the most important cue for resetting your circadian clock, which is still true because light plays a huge role in setting a brain circadian clock, but then the rest of the body follows when we eat. So that's why when you go to the new time zone, it's better to um, be outside and we'll get to that, be outside uh, to get some daylight early in the morning and also um, adopt the new eating pattern. And when you get to the first meal of the day, then we'll discuss that. Are there any risks associated with melatonin supplementation that people should be aware of? Yeah, so uh, melatonin was supposed to be a benign hormone. So this is the only hormone that is not a controlled by the FDA because you don't need a prescription to get melatonin in the United States. Of course, in many other countries, you need a prescription. This is amazing. That is the only human hormone for which you do not need a prescription in the US because scientists and clinicians thought, and there is not um, too much, there is a lot of data showing that you can't overdose on melatonin and fall into serious sickness, illness, or die. Whereas you know, there are many other drugs, many other hormones, for example, thyroid hormone. You can overdose on thyroid and your heart will palpitate. And uh, so that's why people thought that you can actually take melatonin, um, five milligram, 10 milligram, 15 milligram, nothing would happen. But now we are learning that melatonin, just like it makes our brain to sleep, it also makes our pancreas to slow down. So that means melatonin actually reduces our pancreas ability to sense and produce enough insulin 
to control our blood or to regulate our blood glucose level within a very narrow window. So as a result, um, now scientists in many countries, um, many labs have done this control study and they're finding that if you, for example, now, if you give somebody a melatonin pill, equivalent to say three to five milligram of melatonin uh, at the time of their dinner time, either before or immediately after dinner, then these people have uh, difficulty in reducing blood glucose level 90 minutes after their meal. So that means the blood glucose level will remain slightly elevated or higher um, because of this uh, melatonin uh, impairing the normal function of their pancreas to produce insulin, which in turn takes care of the blood glucose. So the converse side, the flip side of the dinner is in the morning, if you have taken a melatonin pill, and if it is a long acting melatonin or slow release melatonin, then in the morning, although your, pen, although your pineal melatonin production is stopped two to three hours before your habitual wake up time, uh, this melatonin will remain, the supplemental melatonin will remain in your system. In some cases, even till noon the next day. So that means from morning till noon, if you're eating something, then you also have the same, you may also have the same uh, problem in controlling your blood plasma or blood uh, glucose level. So that's why now there is this increased awareness that melatonin might affect blood glucose control and also indirectly might affect insulin action which can lead to increased risk for diabetes and obesity um, so that's why that uh, people should be a little bit aware that melatonin should not be consumed like it doesn't have any risk um, and uh, that's why i also said that you should try the minimum dose that works with you um, just don't go blindly pop that five milligram pill because of course that will work pretty well. You will sleep well and in the morning you are so groggy that you might need a couple of shots of caffeine to function. But the, again, caffeine doesn't reduce um, your melatonin level. So you'll just have caffeine trying to wake you up, melatonin trying to make you sleep. Essentially, you'll have a foggy brain in the morning. Yeah, I guess given that there are some risks, uh, it probably makes sense to first think about things like caffeine or are you going to bed at a consistent time or are you exposing yourself to really bright lights and addressing some of those things before just taking a high-dose melatonin supplement. And then as you said, if you are taking a melatonin supplement, trying to start with a sort of minimum effective dose sort of approach with how you're doing it is there any truth Sachin to uh, lowering your core body temperature before bed through a hot shower or a sauna as a way to increase uh, endogenous melatonin uh, production from the pineal gland yeah, so I don't remember, recall any study showing that hot shower or uh, sauna increases pineal melatonin production. Um, but what it does is it actually um, shower or hot sauna, um, all of these actually pull 
blood circulation to the skin or extremities, and then that helps to reduce our core body temperature, and which in turn helps us to sleep. So at least there is a good connection between this um, uh, reducing core body temperature by taking a shower uh, before bedtime. Uh, but I don't recall any study showing the sauna affecting pineal melatonin production. There may be some I'm missing. Yeah. So a hot shower, just to clarify, not a cold shower. Well, <laughs> this is where <laughs> we haven't done the experiment with hot or cold shower. Uh, for example, I always take cold shower and <laughs> it doesn't matter because even if you take a cold shower, when you come out of a cold shower, your blood circulation is actually to the periphery. So <laughs> those who take a cold shower, they know that when they come out, they look like a lobster because of the, <laughs> there is a lot of blood on the surface, skin surface. If we have a few nights of reduced sleep, can we catch up on those hours with naps or, or a longer sleep the next day? Yes, actually, there are some really interesting studies that uh, came out from many labs a long time ago in the US. And also recently, I was in Singapore. I saw Mike Cheese. Uh, his lab has done a lot of experiments showing um, if you did not sleep enough at night, then taking a nap the next day is really good in getting back your full energy, particularly late afternoon, because, you know, when you don't get enough sleep, it's not the productivity in the morning because you can compensate with some caffeine and other stuff. Or some people are naturally, their, their sleep pressure is pretty low. Our circadian sleep pressure, circadian clock, increases sleep pressure in the evening or late afternoon, but actually it has very little sleep pressure in the morning. What it really means for all of us is even if you have less sleep, it's likely that you will be functional from up to, say, 12, 1 or 2 o'clock in the afternoon. But then if you had less sleep the previous night, then what really matters is you'll feel really sleepy after your lunchtime. And this is where people have shown that taking a nap somewhere between, say, 30 minutes to one and a half hour uh, can compensate for sleeping less the previous night. Now the question is, okay, so if you cannot take the nap the next day, then can you accumulate all the sleep debt and then nap in the weekend or whenever you have time, maybe after two or three days? And again, the research is saying, yes, it's actually much better to uh, catch up on sleep in the weekend than uh, maintaining the consistent wake-up time and trying to wake up very early in the morning. Um, so there is some research showing that when you sleep less, <laughs> then try to catch up either by extending sleep in the subsequent days by waking up late or taking a nap in the afternoon. Well, that's good for people to know. I think naps have, there's been a bit of negative stigma associated with <laughs> naps. So there's some good news for those that enjoy them. If you've tuned in to the many episodes I've done focusing on cardiovascular disease, the leading cause of death globally, you'll be well aware that ApoB is a better biomarker for measuring our risk of having a heart attack or stroke than LDL cholesterol. The only problem is that not every pathology lab is set up to test ApoB levels. Fortunately, this has now been made easier by Inside Tracker, a leading health and wellness company founded in 2009 by experts in aging, genetics, and biometric data from Harvard, MIT, and Tufts. 
that provides lifestyle advice based on your blood test results. With the new edition of ApoB, InsideTracker's ultimate plan now analyzes 44 biomarkers, including metabolic health markers like HbA1c, triglycerides, and blood glucose, important nutrients like vitamin D and iron, as well as hormones like cortisol, sex hormone binding globulin, free testosterone, and total testosterone, before giving you science-backed lifestyle advice to optimize your health and longevity. Your data tells the story of your health. With Inside Tracker, get to know your story and create a lifestyle that delivers better health for longer. Get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. To get started and redeem this offer, go to insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. That's insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. Hey friends, the scientific evidence on lifestyle habits that lead to longevity is clear. Now it's time to put this knowledge into action. I'm excited to announce the Living Proof Longevity Challenge, a 12-week program to build evidence-based lifestyle habits to optimize longevity. My team and I have transformed over hundreds of hours of conversations with experts on aging, nutrition, and exercise into a life-changing 12-week program that will challenge you to develop habits that lead to a longer, better life. This is a unique opportunity to gather health data about yourself that has the potential to change your life for the better. You'll start by testing 10 longevity biomarkers that tell the truth about where your longevity stands right now, today. Following that, you'll get a personalized longevity score to guide your 12 weeks of habit building that will boost your score and improve your biomarkers for the better. After the challenge, you'll retest your 10 biomarkers and see the proof of how powerful these science-backed habits really are. Head over to theproof.com forward slash livingproof to download your zero-cost copy of the Living Proof Longevity Challenge today. That's theproof.com forward slash livingproof. Look forward to joining you on this journey. Uh, talk to me about sleep deprivation and where we store body fat. I've read a few studies that have deprived people of sleep and they've observed an increase in visceral fat. So this fat sort of between organs, not the subcutaneous fat under our skin. And I was interested to, to kind of explore this with you. Do you think that that could be explained by changes in, in hormones um, due to circadian disruption that comes with sleep deprivation? Yeah, so this is a difficult um, problem because, you know, there are some studies where um, people have done these studies in mostly in animals because, you know, you cannot ethically deprive a fragment sleep in humans for a very long period of time. And then um, technically you can, in some experiments, you can reduce sleep from habitual, say, seven or eight hours to five hours of sleep or four hours of sleep for four to five days. And there are very few studies where there is complete sleep deprivation for up to 72 hours. But the point is within, say, one week of sleep reduction, we don't become fat. Um, we might have slightly increased adiposity or something. Um, so the laboratory experiments might show some trend towards getting fat. But what is really interesting is lab experiments have shown that when we 
sleepless, particularly adults. We don't know about adolescents and uh, and kids. When we sleep less than somebody who is habitually sleeps seven to eight hours, is allowed to sleep for five hours. That means five hours in bed. So that means it roughly translates to four to four and a half hours of sleep. Then those people will have a reduced ability to maintain their blood glucose or in the other word, the simple layman speak is they will have higher blood glucose level uh, as if they're getting, they're getting close to getting type two diabetes. So that has been shown in many studies. So this is where food and everything is controlled and people are just reduced sleep and they have this disruption in blood glucose regulation. Um, and part of that may be insulin regulation is disrupted. So we know that insulin and obesity are tightly linked. If you have high level of insulin for a long period of time, then insulin actually facilitates or promotes uh, synthesis of fat and deposit of fat. So that's one line of thought. In animal experiments where you can fragment sleep for many, many days, um, of course, there are some studies showing that these animals become gain more weight, even though they are eating same number of calories or they may be eating slightly more. But those animal experiments have not been heavily reproduced that rigorously. And also animal experiments are in one type of animal, one strain of animals. So uh, those, are, those are very controlled conditions. So now let's think what happens in real life when we have less sleep. When we sleep less, then as, you, as, as we uh, discussed, uh, when we sleep, a brain actually increases the synaptic connectivity and strengthens them. That means our brain becomes more efficient in receiving information, processing that information, and taking action. And if we think about every day, what are the different information we perceive, process, and take action? Food is a huge component because every day we are smelling food, we are seeing food, we're hearing about food, and then we are deciding what to eat, how much to eat, and when to stop eating. Um, and we, our brain has to take that decision. So what we are seeing in real life is when people have less sleep, then they're more eager to eat more and also eat unhealthy diet, energy-dense diet. Because maybe our brain is programmed to think that, okay, this person is not going to sleep now. And our ancestors before in the post-industrial era, um, when we didn't sleep, we were actually doing something. We had to defend um, our community or go explore new, uh, new places or do something, physical labor. So maybe that's why our brain is designed that if we are sleep deprived or if we have sleep fragmentation, then it just makes us crave for very energy dense diet and also a lot more food. So that might be one reason why in real life situation, uh, we might see that when we sleep less, then our food craving goes up. And when we eat more, disproportionately more than what we need, then that can lead to obesity. And in fact, in control condition where people are brought into the lab and they're allowed to sleep less and they have access to food that they can eat, they do overeat. So this is an indirect effect of sleep deprivation on increasing 
our food craving because our brain cannot decide how much to eat and which in turn leads to increased fat deposit. Right. So if someone is trying to lose weight, then it would make sense to not only focus on the food, the types of food that they're eating, but also to look at their sleep and to ensure that they're getting adequate or optimal sleep each night because as you've just pointed out, lack of sleep or sleep deprivation could be affecting hunger and their ability to maintain a diet that is providing um, is not providing an excess of calories, I should say. Yeah. So, I mean, and this mindset to, to stick to a specific diet, whether you're doing, forget about timing, quality or anything, if you're just thinking about following a specific diet, then uh, sleep deprivation or reduced sleep will affect that mindset or your determination, which in turn will lead to overeating. It's going to make it harder for you. The second lifestyle habit on your list is a morning fast after waking. What does this look like? Yeah, so after uh, waking up, I mean, I won't say morning fast. It's just following your circadian rhythm because we are not designed to eat right away after waking up. Um, just imagine only in the last 100 years or so, we have access to food 24-7. But before that, we're designed to wake up, go outdoor and explore, look for food, fresh food, whether it was berries or something else, um, or fruits or some vegetables. Um, so why is so there is this natural tendency. And then we are also designed that way because our hormones are not preparing us to eat right away uh, when we wake up. Because within an hour of waking up, our stress hormone cortisol level reaches its peak level. The highest level of stress hormone actually is, is, is attained within an hour or two of waking up, typically within an hour. Uh, and we know that the stress hormones and food, they don't go hand in hand uh, because the stress hormones also, also impair our body's ability to absorb and use those nutrients in the right manner. Um, then the second thing is, uh, in the morning after we wake up, our melatonin level still takes somewhere between one to two hours to go from pretty high level of melatonin, which reaches at peak two hours before we wake up, to daytime, very low detectable level. That downward slope can take uh, two hours after waking up to reach that daytime level. So that's why we are actually designed in a way that our hormones and our habit uh, do not prepare us to eat within one to two hours after waking up. So uh, that's one. And then the second is, um, if you imagine that, okay, so towards the, if you're going through overnight fast, actually the first six, seven, even 10 hours of that fasting, uh, since you stopped your last meal or since your dinner time, um, if your dinner was say at eight o'clock last night, previous night, then up to 6 a.m. in the morning, it's not actually, your body is not going to fast. That means the fasting physiology, whatever happens when we don't eat, is not kicking in up to even 12 hours after that dinner. And so that means um, in the morning when you're waking up, that's when your body is actually 
reaping all the benefits of fasting for 12 hours or longer. Your ketone bodies are slightly going up and then your um, all the other bodily functions that are linked to ketone bodies because now we know that our immunity is linked to ketone body production. Our heart function is linked. Uh, endurance, cognition, a lot of things are linked to just ketone bodies. But then there are other things that um, a body produces during this fasting period. So when you, when you are getting all these benefits, why do you stop that? Why can't we get a little bit more benefit by uh, staying in that fasted state for a couple more hours? So that's why um, in the morning, it's better to wait at least a couple of hours after waking up to have your first uh, uh, meal or first calorie, you can say. So that means within a couple of hours of uh, waking up, you should not be drinking or eating anything that has more than, say, half a teaspoon of sugar or equivalent. Uh, so you might now jump in and say, okay, what about coffee? What about tea? What about hot water? What about um, all these other non-calorie containing uh, stimulants or drinks that people uh, habituated to drink? I would say, yes, you, you can, um, but... If you can wait for a couple of hours, then that's even better. So when you wake up in the morning, Sachin, I know earlier you mentioned that you enjoy coffee. Are you just having water in the in the first two hours after waking or do you have coffee as well? No, actually I do. Uh, I have coffee only after my breakfast. Because um, if you go back to history of coffee, um, actually there are... A lot of people who enjoy black coffee, dark coffee, or Turkish coffee, for example, which is very strong. Uh, if you consistently have black coffee in the morning in empty stomach, then you can. Some people have tendency to develop acid reflux. Um, so that's why, um, actually, breakfast is a very recent phenomenon. So, for example, in Turkey. Um, breakfast literally means the food before coffee because to make sure that they can enjoy coffee without acid reflux, they eat something and then have coffee. <laughs> right. Line the stomach. Right. Uh, okay. Third lifestyle habit, time-restricted eating. Yeah. What is time-restricted eating and what would you say the optimal eating window looks like? Yeah, so what is now most popular is intermittent fasting. Intermittent fasting is a very broad term that goes from time to eating, I'll get to that, to eating, uh, sorry, fasting for one or two days in a week, or water fasting. So uh, intermittent fasting is a broad term. So the technically the right scientific term for what most people think of intermittent fasting is actually time-restricted eating which means that you select a consistent time window in a day and try to eat all your food within that time window. And then the question becomes, when should that time window begin? When should it end? And um, how long should it be? Is it safe? And all that stuff. So my lab, almost 12, 13 years ago, we started this, we observed this very profound effect in mice first, showing that if mice eat even unhealthy diet and they eat the same number of calories, same quality of food um, as control mice which have 
ad limitum or 24-7 access to food. But if the second group of mice that are time-restricted fed, if they eat all of that food within a consistent window of eight hours in the first experiment that we did 12 years ago, then even though they're eating the same number of calories from the same food, they do not gain weight. Their blood glucose level remains normal. Their blood cholesterol level remains normal. Their liver function, all these bodily functions remain healthy level. Whereas the control mice, which were eating the same high fat, high sugar diet within and whenever they wanted, they become very sick. So that's the concept of what we call time restricted feeding, where we are not restricting calorie because a lot of studies historically for the last hundred years, um, people know that calorie restriction or reducing calories improves health. And there is no question or no doubt about it. And also improving quality of nutrition matters because we just can't imagine that you can eat um, high fat, high sugar diet, but reduced calorie and you will still reap the benefits. So we all, there is also enough evidence that better nutrition quality is good for our health. But I guess in the nutrition science, I would say the time restricted feeding, this concept, is really new and this is the most profound discovery in nutrition science or circadian rhythm science in the last 50 years means in this millennium i would say in nutrition science if there is any big discovery then this is time restricted eating or time restricted feeding because before that all the intermittent fasting or calorie restriction essentially said you have to reduce calories you have to count calories and then reduce calories for at least one day in a week or two days in a week. So that's the historical aspect of intermittent fasting or calorie restriction. And um, when we discovered that and published it, of course, the first experiment was done in which mice were fed for eight hours. And that's why we all assumed and it became almost like a religion that intermittent fasting means you have to eat for eight hours and fast for 16 hours. But subsequently in 2014, we systematically looked in mice and we found that eight, nine or 10 hours of eating and then 16, 15 or 14 hours of fasting respectively was almost comparable. These mice were uh, healthy and only when they ate for 11 or 12 hours, then the benefits were not that profound. So that's why in most of our studies nowadays in humans, we ask people to try to eat within 10 hours. And if they can go to eight hours, that's okay, but uh, better. But um, if they can stay within 10 hours, then that's pretty good. So then the question is, when should you start eating in the morning? As we discussed until now, maintaining a morning fast of at least two hours after waking up is a pretty good habit. So if you're waking up at 6 a.m., then you can start your time restricting window from 8 a.m. onwards. If you're eating, waking up at 8 a.m., then you can count maybe 10 a.m. onwards or later. Um, and then the question is, when should you stop eating? And as I said, you can go from 8, 9, 10 um, hours of time restricting eating. Some people who are healthy enough and have very high level of physical activity. For example, you're bodybuilding or you're um, athlete and uh, you have good amount of physical activity, uh, then you can go up to 12 hours, but not beyond 12 hours, because if you go beyond 12 hours, then 
your last meal is coming very close to the bedtime which will, which will uh, disrupt your ability to have good night of sleep so that's why in most of our clinical studies we ask people don't go beyond 12 hours even on those days in the weekend or in off days if you have to eat little later night try to be within that 12 hours and people might say that hey i consistently eat within 12 hours but actually which is not true because what we find is um, nearly 50% of people um, consistently eat for 14 hours 45 minutes or longer and less than 10% of people consistently eat in 12 hours or shorter interval so a lot of people actually we don't consider sometimes we we have a late night snack or um, bedtime nightcap or something we don't consider that as food but it does uh, matter those things matter so that's the concept of time restricted eating then the question is what are the benefits so as i mentioned um by doing time restricted eating people do see many metabolic benefits so now there are also studies showing that even human uh, people who go through at least 13 to 14 hours of fast so that means those who are eating within 10 to 11 hours or less then they have reduced risk for cancer they have reduced risk those cancer patients who have cured themselves um, cancer survivors if they eat within 10 to 11 hours or less then they also have reduced risk for relapse uh, of cancer so Uh, it's not only metabolic state for example cholesterol um, blood sugar and blood pressure which definitely improve under time restricted eating but some of the diseases like um, cancer and now there is evidence that at least in mouse model and animal models neurodegenerative diseases um, their risk also reduces under time restricted eating then the question is why we actually see we have done very extensive study in animal models we have taken 20 22 different organs and brain regions and asked what are the impacts of time restricted eating on our genome on actually on mouse genome and what we find is by time restricted eating of course in fasting many who are listeners who are familiar with autophagy mitochondria function uh, ketone bodies they can relate the fasting period to all of those and we did find those things yes those things do occur on the time restricting particularly during the fasting phase but what we are surprised to learn was this feeding or eating following a long fast actually improves a body's ability to repair um dna damage or fold our proteins properly so our cells are more healthy so many of the repair functions in the rest of the body not in the brain but rest of the body improves a lot substantially uh, under this time restricted feeding paradigm so i guess um, the benefits of time restricted eating of time restricted feeding goes beyond just metabolic disease but also into brain function and maybe in future we'll also know whether um, in more controlled studies whether it can improve even prognosis from cancer those who are going through cancer treatment can time restricting help them to get better much faster or uh, for example rehab after cancer treatment or rehab after heart attack uh, so there are some studies going on in that area but at least for average person 
the bottom line is if we do time rotating then we are increasing our resilience against many chronic disease and in at least few animal experiments we have seen that time rotating also increases resilience against infectious disease so that means if you're if you're kind of coming down with a flu or bacterial infection mild infection i'm not talking about like you have a massive infection and just time rotating will cure you but mild because every day we're exposed to a lot of microbes a lot of disease causing microbes we are ingesting a lot of things so at least our resilience against those microbes increases so that we don't easily fall sick the other benefit that we did not anticipate a surprising benefit was time restating somehow improves sleep quality um, and we don't have a specific reason why but we feel that if you stop eating two to three hours before habitual bedtime then maybe your digestion is done major part of your digestion is done before we go to bed so that your core body temperature falls much faster. That's at least one of the hand-waving ex explanation, but no one has done this experiment. So that's at least one of the things that we are thinking. So the bottom line is it has many benefits. And this is the, there are nearly 150 plus clinical trials going on. There are many clinical trials, small, big, those have been published. Of course, few studies haven't seen uh, bigger benefit, but almost all studies have some, seen some benefits. And just to kind of uh, bold or underline what this time-restricted eating window can look like for someone, if we're sort of tying together a few of these lifestyle habits that we've already spoken about, if you are in bed for eight hours, and then if you are waiting two or three hours upon waking to have your first uh, food for breakfast and you have two or three hours after your last meal dinner before you go to bed automatically that becomes a 10 to 12 hour eating window so that's a kind of good way of of sort of thinking about it on your individual level and that the timing for all of that will simply be determined by what time you go to bed and wake up and then everything else falls into place. What about food distribution? There is some school of thought out there that perhaps eating more of your calories in the first half or the middle of the day is better from a metabolic point of view than having less food early in the day and having the majority of your calories uh, at dinner and I think there's that saying breakfast like a king lunch like a prince dinner like a pauper is that something that you subscribe to is there enough evidence to support that as a recommendation for people yeah I mean uh, we know that because of the circadian rhythm um, the pancreas is much more efficient in producing insulin in the first half of the day uh, second is when we go through this overnight fast, we, the pancreas also produces enough digestive acids. It's not only insulin, but digestive enzymes and acids that are primed to digest uh, food much better um, when you eat your breakfast or in the first half of the day. So as you can see, our physiology, our circadian rhythm itself primes us to have bigger meals in the first half of the day. 
Um, so that's why it's better to eat bigger meals in the first half of the day. So that doesn't mean that you have to eat before noon all your big meals. But when you start eating, having a bigger breakfast is always good because you process that calories much better. And also it reduces your drive to eat a bigger lunch. And we know that a lot of people, including me, if I have a big lunch, then my postprandial dip comes through and then I have to nap or I have to have caffeine to counteract that postprandial dip. Uh, so in an indirect way, it also increases your productivity throughout the day. Uh, so that's why. And I describe it in more detail in my book, The Circadian Code, um, what exactly happens after the first meal and what are the different organs that are involved in this processing. So now, the, but the thing is, when we objectively look at how much people eat at different time of the day, what we see is we consume nearly 35% of, of our daily calorie intake um, in late afternoon, early evening. So that means starting from our dinner, beginning of the dinner or appetizer until we finish dinner and after dinner snacks and dessert that accounts for almost one third of our calories. So that means we have reversed what you said. We are actually eating like a king at the end of the day. Um, we haven't actually gone back to see what is the benefit. If you're if you are selecting a 10 hour window, for example, what happens if you have more calories in the first, if you're front loading or back loading, what are the impacts? We haven't seen, uh, we haven't done systematic studies uh, in a control setting. But there are some results from Japan and few other countries showing that, yes, front loading is much better because um, in older Japanese people, they found that those who front load a lot of calories, particularly having a good balanced breakfast with protein, carbohydrate, and fat in the morning, uh, they have a much better healthy health state in older age than people who backload. Um, but again, these are epidemiological data collected for over a long period of time. So uh, one caveat is those who are eating later at night, are they also sleeping worse? So that's why their health metrics are. So that's the problem with the epidemiological studies because most people capture only one aspect and it's really hard to uh, factor in all the other factors. I can't imagine many uh, Japanese people ordering takeaway pizza and ice cream and passing out on the couch. <laughs> it's not it's not a picture I have in my mind. Uh, we, we've spoken previously, Sachin, about whether time-restricted eating is as important for someone who does not have type 2 diabetes or doesn't have pre-diabetes. And I recently had a conversation with Inigo San Milan and we were talking about, I'm not sure if you're familiar with his work, but he, he looks at um, exercise and metabolic health, mitochondrial function. And he, he really emphasized this point that just because you don't have a diagnosis of prediabetes or type two diabetes, it actually doesn't mean you have good metabolic health. And he's seen in his lab you know, many people who do not have a diagnosis of prediabetes or type 2 diabetes or non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, but when you look in at mitochondrial function, they actually do have some mitochondrial decay. And um, that comes to mind because 
you just mentioned before that one of the potential benefits of time-restricted eating is improving mitochondrial uh, function. So the point that I'm, I'm making here or the question that I'm putting to you is if a listener is thinking, I'm otherwise pretty healthy, I haven't been diagnosed with a metabolic condition, is time-restricted eating something that could still improve their health? Yeah, I mean, uh, as I mentioned that um, sleep, for example, improves under time restricting. And uh, we all agree that sleep is an important um, foundation for health. Um, so that's at least one aspect where time restricting will help improve brain health and organismal health. And uh, your point is also right about mitochondria function because mitochondria um, and not energy plants that are running 24-7 at full efficiency. They're not like our, uh, you know, and they're not like hydroelectric or nuclear power plants. Let's put it that way. They're like our solar panel. So that means uh, mitochondria actually produce energy for some time and then they get damaged. So that's why they go through what we call mitochondria fusion and fusion. So that means mitochondria will figure out where the damage is then they will all the damaged parts are kind of pushed to one side and then that part buds off and then goes away and then the mitochondria can the healthy mitochondria can fuse with each other and repair so this is almost like the mitochondrial repair has a daily cycle so in that way what we are finding is time restoring helps that rhythm in mitochondrial repair, self-repair that happens every single day. And mitochondria, we are now learning, are also important. Healthy mitochondria are important players in cancer prevention and also reducing the risk for dementia and brain health. Means at the end of the day, who we are as an individual depends on what memory we have, how we sense our environment, what dreams and imaginations we have. And it's all linked to the brain. And when we lose that ability to recall, to process information, sense our surrounding and imagine our dream, that's when we lose our identity. And all of that depends on healthy mitochondria and the brain. And that's why I strongly believe that time restricting has many benefit beyond controlling glucose, controlling blood sugar and blood pressure. When you're looking at mitochondrial functional dysfunction, and this might be going into the weeds, so keep it as surface level as you, you feel is necessary. Uh, I know that Inigo San Milan, he mentioned that they measure lactate. And lactate is like a window into mitochondrial function. Is, is that something that you're also measuring when you're looking at how time-restricted eating are affecting mitochondrial function? Yeah, we measure many uh, aspects. So, for example, we actually take the tissue um, and then measure mitochondrial respiration directly, how much oxygen they consume, and then how they use glucose or how they use permitted or fat. Um, and then what is the total mitochondrial capacity and what is the leak current uh, we measure all of that. And lactate is also a very important indicator of mitochondria function. Um, 
the challenge with lactate is lactate has such a huge range. Um, you can go from almost undetectable level of lactate to hundredfold or thousandfold lactate. Um, it doesn't mean that it's uh, it's uh, non-significant, but actually now um, metabolism research is highlighting the important function of lactate. Lactate seems to be even a signaling molecule, so it can signal the state of the health, mitochondrial health to other parts of the cell and other parts of the body. Um, yes, it's a important aspect and uh, we are just learning more about it. We haven't studied the impact of time initiating on lactate because, you know, in lactate is also affected a lot by physical activity. And in mice, most of our experiments are done in mice because we can control a lot of stuff. It's difficult to reduce mouse physical activity. It's easy to increase the mouse physical activity by putting them on a treadmill or a wheel. Uh, so there are some experiments that we cannot do easily in mice, and this is one. Just to close the loop here on time-restricted eating, are there, are there any differences between females and males based on differences in physiology, hormone profiles, et cetera, with regards to how time-restricted eating may affect someone's health and, and health outcomes? Yeah, so uh, most of the studies in humans have been uh, smaller in number of people, so it's very difficult to differentiate what are the difference between male and female. And also many studies um, recruit women premenopausal and postmenopausal, so that also makes it very difficult to figure out whether it works or doesn't work in pre- and postmenopausal. <coughs> Excuse me. Then among premenopausal women, we also don't know. Many of the studies don't record whether they are on certain type of birth control that can affect the hormonal level. So that's why from human studies, it's not very clear whether it differentially affects uh, physiology differently. But the bottom line is uh, none of the studies have shown that females are less or more responsive to time restricting. Um, overall, we see similar response. Now, coming back to mouse studies or rat studies where we can control all of these factors very uh, controlled way, what we find is a little bit tricky. One is female mice, just like women, are very resistant to metabolic disease. And this is well known that you know, when they ask, okay, what is your risk for getting diabetes or pre-diabetes? One risk is being male because <laughs> males are, are more prone to getting diabetes than females. And same thing happens in mice. Um, then second is males are also more prone to getting liver disease than females in mice and humans. But once uh, women or female mice get liver disease, fatty liver disease, then their outcome is worse. They actually get into NAS and other uh, uh, hepatic, uh, sorry, hepatocellular cancer or liver cancer much faster than men. So these are some of the basic differences between men and women or male mice and female mice. Female mice, um, 
also gain less weight if they're put on high fat diet. So male mice will very quickly gain weight. Female mice don't gain weight that quickly. So let's keep this thing in mind. So when we do time restricting in female mice and male mice, young and old, what we find is female mice don't gain weight. So time restricting doesn't have too much impact in weight differences because they're lean on the leaner than male mice in both time restricted feeding and not libitum feeding. Uh, all the benefits of time restricting so far we have talked about happens in male mice. So let's think what happens in female mice. Although female mice don't gain weight and are protected from obesity, even on high fat diet, they get uh, fat deposit in their liver and time restricting reduces that fat deposit. So that means time restricting reduces the risk for non-alcoholic fatty liver disease in female mice. Um, time restricting also improves the endurance just like it does in uh, male mice. And almost all the other benefits that we have seen also happens in female mice. So what is the takeaway message? That is, at least in mice, although time restricted feeding does not have much impact in reducing body weight, it actually gives all the other benefits that we see in male mice. So the takeaway message, even for humans, is you may not, if you're not seeing a change in body weight or reduction in body weight, you should not give up because there are many other benefits of time restricted eating that are imparted even without weight loss. And this has been shown again in human studies showing that in very controlled study where the weight is maintained, hydration still had a lot of benefits. You mentioned there the potential differences between pre and post menopausal phases of life. And because there's such a low number of subjects in the human studies, it can be hard to kind of tease out if there's any um, unique effects in those different populations. Um, but I guess something that comes to mind for me here is particularly in the premenopausal phase or just something for people to be aware of, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, is if you're restricting your eating window too much and then that is resulting in insufficient energy intake, there is some research to suggest that uh, insufficient energy intake, particularly over a prolonged period, could negatively affect the menstrual cycle in certain individuals. Yeah, that's true. So uh, in particularly normal weight women who are trying to do time restricting for something else, and they're also physically active, um, and they can be in a negative energy state because uh, if you combine their basal metabolic rate or whatever their body just needs, even if they're not active, that's completely sedentary. That's called basal metabolic rate or what is the minimum energy requirement. And plus, you add all the physical activity. If someone is running, say, five miles every day on an average or 35 miles to 50 miles in a week, then that requires extra amount of energy. And so you combine all of these and then see whether this person is actually a normal weight person who is physically active and is premenopausal, um, if she is not consuming or meeting that energy demand, then after a few weeks, maybe in a negative energy balance, so that will trigger uh, amenorrhea or irregular menstrual cycle. 
So that's why one has to be very careful to combine time-rich eating with adequate nutrition so that your menstrual cycle is normal. Okay, the fourth lifestyle habit, we're making our way through this list, is daylight. What does appropriate daylight exposure look like or optimal daylight exposure? Yeah, so daylight uh, impacts our brain circadian clock. So that means uh, in the morning um, or in the first half of the day, for example, if we go outdoor, then it has uh, a beneficial impact on entraining or synchronizing a brain clock with the outside world or with the daytime. So now the question is how much daylight one should need. And for an average person, roughly 1,000 lux of light is, and 1,000 lux of light for up to one hour is enough. So 1,000 lux of light is something that you get if you're right next to a window eating your breakfast. Um, that means within one meter from the window, if you're sitting, uh, then in the daytime, whether it's cloudy or sunny, it doesn't matter, then you get roughly 1,000 lux of light. If you go outdoor, even on a cloudy day, or if you're outdoor under a canopy or an umbrella, then you still get um, five to 10,000 lux of light. So this is the minimum amount of light you should get to reset, re-entrain your circadian clock. And uh, for most people, that's also the amount of light that will be enough to increase our alertness or reduce our depressive thought in the morning. But if somebody is actually depressed or uh, have winter blues, then um, most circadian researchers or light researchers agree that that person should get five to 10,000 lux of light for an hour. So that means being outdoor, even on a cloudy day uh, for half an hour to one hour is good for somebody who has depressive symptoms or is, or is more likely to get depressed. Um, so this is, this is interesting because in these days, we always say, we always say well, during COVID, it, uh, our kids and many people got very depressed. And the thing that this is because of COVID, which may be true, but another thing is when we work from home and we're not going outdoor, then we're also not getting that daylight uh, five to 10,000 lux of light. That's minimum to improve our mood, improve our brain health. And no indoor lighting can give you five to 10,000 lux. Most brightest light that we can afford to have as a consumer will give you 1,000 to 1,200 lux of light. So the take-home message for brain health and light is, you know, if your friend is depressed or if you or if somebody is going through postpartum depression, for example, uh, one chance is they may not be getting enough daylight. And if you if you if you are really trying to help, just take your friend for a walk in the park or walk in the garden during daytime, and that. By doing that, you are not only giving your social support, but you are also giving them access to this free, <laughs> most abundant antidepressant surrounding us. That's the daylight. Nature's therapy. Two questions. 
on this exposure to five to 10,000 lux. One, does the proximity from the time you wake up matter? And two, do you need to get that five to 10,000 lux by one hour in one consecutive chunk? Or can you break that up throughout the day? If you can get right after waking up or within an hour or two of waking up that 1,000 or 5,000 lux, then it does two things. One is that's the time when your brain is most likely to function at its best. And on top of that, if you're reducing your sleep pressure or any residual melatonin by morning exposure to light, then it's just you are building up on that, your potential for executive function or better brain health for the first half of the day. And on top of that, if you're traveling um, and, and you are in a new time zone, then it's much better to get up in the early in the morning. If you're jet lagged, of course, you may be waking up early, then go outdoor, get that bright light in the first couple of hours after waking up. That also helps to reset to the new time zone increase alertness, reduce melatonin, uh, pineal melatonin that may be there. Uh, so there are all these benefits. But if you can't, then it doesn't matter. Even late afternoon, noon, or whatever time you can get the bright light is also good to reduce depression. And for some reason, we don't know why, that daylight or daytime bright light exposure also increases nighttime melatonin increase rise. So that means if you're getting a good dose of daylight by walking in the park or being outdoor, then there's a good chance that your nighttime melatonin levels will also go up, which may explain why sometimes if we go to the beach or if you have gone on a hike, um, actually beach is a good example because you are not actually physically too much active if you're just lying down on the beach you still feel more sleepy that night. And that might be one reason why, because the daytime light exposure is cranking up nighttime melatonin. Does the amount of light that someone needs depend on the time of the year, the season? So when it's winter, for example, and there's less hours of daylight, should we be spending more time in darkness or should we try and stick to our same routine and use artificial light inside? Yeah, so winter can be very tough because, uh, you know, <laughs> San Diego winter is not that hard. We can still go outside. But, you know, if you're in Boston, if you're in uh, Michigan or Minnesota or, you know, in London, northern London, in northern England or northern uh, Nordic countries, then, in winter, you may not actually get much light. And also, it's too cold to spend one hour outdoor <laughs> walking. So in those cases, it's actually much better to uh, make sure that you have bright light um, indoor. In fact, these days, it's not a big problem because the problem these days is not uh, super bright light indoor, but having access to darkness in the evening. So your regular LED light bulbs in most countries and most places, uh, if you have a couple of them in your room, and also if you have a bright display, for example, most of us are now working 
in front of a flat screen, uh, laptop screen, or a large computer screen, if you crank up that brightness to the full brightness, and then if you have a couple of lights in the room, uh, that itself will give you enough. It, you can reach easily 1,000 lux of light uh, exposure. So um, you can get that. Going back to your previous question, whether you can get that, whether you should get that 1,000 lux or 10,000 lux in a continuous one hour or 30 minutes or break it down to smaller chunks. Actually, it's better to get that continuously because this circadian lighting system or the circadian light sensing system is designed in a slightly different way because, for example, our ancestors or when we didn't have access to light, electrical lighting, um, if there was a stormy night and there was lightning and all that stuff, then that flashlight or a brief period of bright light was not effective in resetting our clock. So a short duration of five minutes of light, for example, bright light or 10 minutes of bright light is not sufficient to reset our clock or increase our alertness. So that's why continuous light exposure for at least 30 minutes or more is what is considered beneficial. I'm just trying to put my shoes, my feet in the shoes of some of the listeners and i'm thinking of a typical sort of routine waking up at six o'clock in the morning perhaps um, someone has kids so they're they're rushing around to get their kids ready and they they're making breakfast at home so at this stage the sun's kind of coming up they maybe have the blinds down um, and they could open those to let a little bit more light in to start getting some some light exposure early in the day and then they're in the car and they're dropping the kids somewhere and they're off to work and then sitting in an office. Is, is that type of light exposure going to be adequate? The light exposure just coming into the house in the morning, coming into the car as they're driving to work and then sitting in an office where there is a lot of bright lights? Yeah, all of this count actually towards this uh, light exposure. In fact, you know, um, as you mentioned, one of the healthy habits one can develop is wake up in the morning and then open all the curtains in your house, in your bedroom or living room or wherever you're going to spend time um, after waking up. And similarly, once you, um, if you have to check your backyard or your balcony plants or anything, then it's better to go in the morning or if you want to have breakfast instead of, if you can, if the weather allows, then have your breakfast in the balcony or right next to a large window. Um, put your dining table next to the window. And so these are small practices that can actually help you to get the light levels that you get. Yeah, just sm small modifications and, and these things can kind of add up over time. The, the fifth lifestyle habit, is exercise and I know that you specifically are an advocate for afternoon exercise. Why are you such a big proponent for afternoon exercise? Well, exercise at any time is good. <laughs> so let's make sure that exercise at any time is good because many of us don't get enough uh, physical activity. Um, if we look at the average step counts from Fitbit or any kind of wearables that you're getting that people wear, uh, even those who are wearing <laughs> a, 
activity tracker, the average activity level is around 3,000 to 5,000 steps. So it's pretty low. So any activity is better than this low level of activity. Second thing is, okay, so why afternoon activity? Because from um, at least three or four reasons. One is if you're an athlete, then your ability to, um, to be at a peak performance is much higher in the late afternoon because you don't need that warm-up time because in the morning your body is not warm enough. So that's why you need that warm-up time and then the joints are not flexible enough. So that's why you need that time. Whereas late afternoon exercise, your body is warm enough, your heart is pumping pretty well, you're breathing pretty well. So you can reach your peak performance much better in the late afternoon than early in the morning. And there are many studies historically dating back to 1980s showing that uh, athletic performance is much better in late afternoon, um, even much better in the late afternoon, early evening than late in the evening or night. So we should not think that we can push that to late night after dinner and you'll be athletically better. So that's for athletes. Then second is, um, our pancreas functions better in the first half of the day. So that means in the second half of the day or in the uh, evening, late afternoon, early evening, a pancreas is not producing enough insulin to help absorb enough glucose from our diet. And we know that physical activity is almost like insulin because physical activity can help our muscle to soak up blood glucose um, even with very little or no assistance from insulin. So that's why older adults um, can benefit by having some physical activity. It's not that you have to run on a treadmill for an hour or so. Even speed walking, even brisk walking, or any other forms of exercise late afternoon helps to better control that blood glucose with uh, less insulin. So those who are pre-diabetic or early newly diagnosed type 2 diabetic, they can better control their blood glucose by afternoon exercise than the same exercise in the morning. There are also studies uh, from Stockholm showing this specific effect. There is also rich literature showing late afternoon, early evening exercise is much better in controlling blood pressure than the same exercise in the morning. So for older adults who are at a higher risk for high blood sugar or high blood pressure, that's why late afternoon, early evening exercise is better. I also mentioned that your joints are more flexible. And if you think about older adults, uh, 50 plus, <laughs> Now I'm an older adult. My joint, <laughs> our joints are more flexible. So then the risk for injury is reduced in late afternoon, early evening exercise. So these are all the benefits. Some are direct health benefits. Some are for uh, elite athletes or if you want to increase your performance and some just to avoid injuries. So doing exercise at any time is recommended, but late afternoon early evening exercise might offer some additional benefits particularly yeah. as people are are aging so something for people to kind of think about um and and see what fits within their their lifestyle and and all the things that they have to fit into 
one day, 24-hour period. If people are exercising in the evening, are we talking about exercising before dinner, after dinner, and um, how close to, to bedtime? Is there a risk of if you're exercising too close to bedtime that it could negatively affect sleep? Yeah, so there is some studies in that area, but then again, there are conflicting results that even uh, exercising close to bedtime, for some people, it doesn't affect their sleep. And for some people, it does affect their sleep quality or they they cannot fall asleep. Um, so the bottom line is just try to see whether it affects your sleep. If it doesn't affect your sleep ability to fall asleep, then it's okay. What practically, what really happens is, particularly in the Western world and also in many parts of the world, if you're going to gym late at night, late in the evening, after dinner, uh, you are, if you did a good workout, then you are typically sweaty, you want to take a shower, and that shower may counteract some of the effect of, adverse effect of intense physical activity on sleep. So that's why, if you, if you the only time you can exercise is after dinner, then maybe pay attention to taking a good shower and that might help you fall asleep. And maybe try and find a gym that doesn't have too many bright lights. Yes, that's another thing. <laughs> it's or maybe wear your blue light filtering eyeglasses. <laughs> of course, you look cool okay. in the gym, yeah. The sixth lifestyle habit and the last one on the list for today. And we have spoken about both of these. So feel free to just reiterate any points or add anything additional that you, you think would be worthwhile. This one is no food and bright light for two to three hours before bed. Yeah. So um, this is, again, Another uh, simple thing that most people can do is to, I mean, if you are doing time restricting and you have started, say, two to three hours after waking up, then obviously your last meal should have been two to three hours before going to bed. And then the question is bright light. And this is, this is the challenge in modern days because um, most of the lights that we get nowadays for home is bright blue led and in fact we actually at least in the us and in some western world when you go to purchase a light bulb then you do have choices you can get a bright blue led light or you can get an led where the light spectrum is towards little orange yellowish and it's much better to pick that orange and yellowish bulb at least for your living room or bedroom where you are going to spend uh, a substantial part of your evening before bedtime. But I was recently I was in Asia and there are many parts of Asia where you don't have actually access to the only option you have is bright blue LED. And in fact, most people <laughs> will pay attention to how cheap is the blue bulb, light bulb, and how bright is that light bulb? So we are always thinking about the cost for brightness. And that's the wrong way to choose a light bulb because you need actually, what you need is a different light bulb for, your, for, for the evening. So if you can afford, I guess, the best 
uh, health investment that you can do is choosing the right light bulb. <laughs> Actually, the dimmest light bulb we can get for your uh, living room or uh, bedroom where you are going to spend most time is the best choice. And the next thing, uh, health investment that you can do in your lighting is replacing your light flip switches with dimmers. And this is something that I have written a one full chapter in the circadian code book um, that dimmers are actually way much better than uh, flip switch because at least in the daytime, if you are working from home or if it is bad weather that you have to keep the windows closed or if you have a nosy neighbor, that's why you have to keep the windows closed, then at least you, you can crank up the dimmer and you can have bright light during the daytime and at nighttime you can dim it down. And unfortunately, for light, we always think of how little money we can spend to get the brightest bulb. And uh, that's the wrong mindset. We have to now think about, for the first time, again, this is another big discovery of this century is for the first time in history, the circadian rhythm research has led to this idea that lighting can be manipulated for health or the term light therapeutics. So one side of the coin is yes, in the daytime having much brighter light is way much better for our mental health than some of the drugs, antidepressants and other things. And then the other side is by dimming down light in the evening or reducing um, the brightness on our screen, whether it's laptop or phone, or changing the color of the light to orange color and dim at night is also beneficial for sleep and brain health. And this is, a most, this is the most profound impact of lighting research on human health that's yet to come. Because since the beginning of using light to light up the evening, whether from candlelight or from kerosene lamp to um, light bulb, we never thought about the impact of light on health as profoundly now uh, as before. Yeah, I think that's a, a huge takeaway from this conversation, Sachin, for people to consider is to go back through this episode and think about what are some of the ways you can set up your environment, particularly at home where you're spending so much time uh, so that you're nurturing the circadian rhythms and these rhythms are working for you, not against you. And uh, with that, you're reducing your risk of metabolic conditions, cancer, obesity, and feeling more energized and better in your your day-to-day. -day. So it's not just about the long-term, but also how are you functioning today? What are your energy levels like? What is your memory like, cognition? All of these things are impacted by your circadian rhythms and, and whether you're nurturing them or not. Out of these six lifestyle habits, Sachin, if you had to choose... If I'm putting you on the spot, which I am right now, and the listener was going to focus on just one, of course we want them to focus on all six, but what is the most important one? That's the time restricting because once you hone in on time restricting, then it improves your sleep, so you don't have to even pay too much attention, you don't have to make an explicit attempt to improve your sleep, this will improve. 
Second is once you pay attention to time restraining, um, it also indirectly helps you to stop eating, having that evening fast. And the indirect benefit that we haven't discussed is time restraining also improves your nutrition quality because if your kitchen closes at six or seven or eight o'clock in the evening, then you have less opportunity to drink too much alcohol or have a late night um, bowl of ice cream. So it indirectly improves your nutrition quality. In many human studies, people have shown that by time restricting, since we are reducing that calories from the bad calorie, the junk calorie that we typically consume late at night, it also helps us reduce caloric intake. So one of the indirect benefit of time restricting is actually reducing calories as much as 20%, 25%. And why this is important and significant is um, the metabolism researcher, nutrition researchers have already found out that if we just reduce our calories by 15 to 20%, or ideally 25%, then it reduces our risk for many diseases and also it increases our chance for increasing lifespan and health span. So that means it increases our chance of staying healthy for a longer time. But researchers had also found it is extremely difficult for people to count calories and then figure out whether they have reduced that calorie by 25%. So for example, between you and I, Simon, you have you are learning a lot about nutrition and quality of calories and quantity of calories. And I bet, I'll bet 100 bucks that you don't know how many calories you have consumed yesterday or how many calories. Means I don't know whether you are doing water fasting since morning because that will be easy for you. That's why I said yesterday. Yeah, well, today, today I, I'm probably 13 or 14 hours right now since my last meal. So it's a little easier for me today. Yeah. Uh, I have had a coffee though. I had a coffee yeah. this So that's morning, why I asked so you about yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that's that's one thing that I might change though is I might push that coffee back now to have that with breakfast. But I agree with you. I would have uh, I would have a ballpark idea of my calories, but it would certainly not be that accurate. Yeah, so that's why you know, there are clinical studies where people wanted to reduce uh, calories in this cohort and the target was 25% calorie reduction, but then they ended up with less than 15% calorie reduction. After all these expenses, all this education about reading labels and figuring out portion size, paying attention to every single meal and doing mental math from morning till evening until you go to bed to make sure that you are reducing calories. Whereas in time of eating, if it translates that if you have a eight hours a time window, and if that eight hours or nine hours is helping you to reduce calories by 20, 25%, that's amazing because you are not doing all those mental math from morning to evening every single day trying to reduce. But if it helps you to achieve that goal, to reduce caloric intake, improve nutrition quality by, by reducing alcohol intake, reducing dessert intake, and also increasing breakfast quantity because breakfast is... For many people, breakfast is the only meal in the day when we have complete control over what and how much we eat. Because once we get out of the house, we have no control where our next meal will be. 
and what will be that new. So that's why I say that time restraining will be the number one. And it also has impact, beneficial impact on muscle function, motor coordination, and long-term prevention of cancer and dementia. So uh, <laughs> it's a no-brainer. There we go, friends. Time-restricted eating. Sachin, thank you so much for joining us again today. This has been super informative, a very practical conversation, one that I know the listeners will be extremely grateful for. And we certainly appreciate you and, and all of your hard work. So thank you very much. Thank you, Simon. And uh, have a perfect circadian day. Yes, thank you. And we'll put a link to uh, your bio online and to Circadian Code, your book, should anyone want to get a copy of that and learn a little bit more about everything we've been speaking about. Um, and yeah, I look forward to continuing the conversation sometime in the future. There you have it, friends. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did and want to stay up to date with future episodes, be sure to hit that subscribe button on YouTube and follow on Apple or Spotify. Finally, thank you for showing up and the effort that you're making to take control of your health. I look forward to hanging out with you again in the next episode.